You are listening to the Creekside Church Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy this sermon by Pastor Terry Riley, titled, Why We Can Trust the Bible, from the series, 40 Days in the Word. For more info, visit creekside.org. I want you to turn to uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3. It's going to be a scripture that we will probably refer to in the next season. I'm going to ask you just to give me a little liberty today. Um, I, got, it's, I got so much information that um, it's kind of an informational talk, but it's important for where we're going in terms of the scriptures. If you don't believe fully that this is God's word and that it comes from God, here's probably the big problem you'll have. You will face cultural issues, you will face personal issues, and you will begin to think with the mind of self instead of the mind of God. And, and, and that's always a problem because that's what happens in churches when they begin to slide and they begin to think that they have a better interpretation or understanding of life than God does. It's the same way in our families. When we begin to think that we can figure out our family without God or His principles, that's usually when we'll experience our biggest struggles. And then we ultimately become God in our thinking because this is only a, well, I like this part, so I'll believe that or I'll live that, but I don't really care for that, so I won't. And that's where people get into trouble. Chinks in the armor, compromises in their life. So as we get into this, I really want you to understand that that's the perspective that we're coming from today. Now, you may not be there yet. That's all right. But I I need to just up front in this next 40 days, we're going to do that. And then we're also going to say, Jesus, would you become even larger through this process? Because uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1 says this, that love puffs up while, excuse me, knowledge puffs up while love builds up. So I want you to think of this picture in your mind, that while we're growing our minds in the word of Christ, we're enlarging our hearts with the love of Christ. Because otherwise we'll just become religious people. And, and there's nothing, wor- there's, there, there, I'm not going to say worse, but there's, it's really difficult to deal with religious people that really know the word, but they don't have the love of Christ because they can become very mean. So as we go through this, I'm probably going to remind you that every week, that it's, we want to grow in the love of God as we grow in the knowledge of God. But grow, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Second Timothy chapter 3, Paul is writing to his protege in the faith, Timothy. Timothy has now been the pastor of the church at Ephesus for a while. He was young. He was probably timid. And in taking over, Paul now is encouraging him in some things. And uh, he's coming to the end of his life. And he says, these are some really important things, Timothy, that I want you to know. So if we pick it up in uh, chapter 3, verse 14, this is what he says to his son in the faith. But as for you, Timothy... Continue in what you have learned. Continue to grow in it. Ah, it sounds something like Peter would say, grow in the grace and the knowledge. What you have learned firmly believed, knowing those from who you learned. Because you have been learning since your childhood. You have known the sacred scriptures which are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And then here's our text for today, and we'll use a little bit of this next week as well. All Scripture is inspired by God. 
I'm going to tell you, some of your translations, it's more correct or more literal, say this, all Scripture is God-breathed. And it's profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Why? So that the person, the man, the woman of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. You don't get equipped. You don't get perfected. You don't get ready for good works without God's word. Because at some point, you begin to talk from you and what you know versus what God says. And I want us to really understand that. Now, note that phrase, all scripture is God-breathed. The, <clears throat> the word in the original language in the Greek is, is theo, uh, theonoustos. And, 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 and theo has to do with God. Whenever you see the thing theo, that means God. And, and noustos means breathed. Interesting because the Holy Spirit um, is, uh, I believe it's hagios pneumos, uh, which is pneumos again is, 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 is the word spirit or breath. And so God, we often see that. Jesus says it in John chapter 3 about the pneumos, the spirit, the breath of God, the wind of God, which is the spirit. What does that mean? Well, some of your translations uh, say, use the word inspired. But he's not talking here about inspired writers giving inspiring writing for an inspiring book. It's that God has inspired and breathed this book into the writers. See, you're listening to me today, the breath of Terry Riley, and I thank God every day for my breath. But it's coming over, up and over, and vibrating my vocal cords, and it's coming out of sound. If I didn't have breath, I wouldn't have any voice. And God says that God's word is literally his breath. His word to us, that he's breathed through the writers of the scriptures. So it wasn't just them thinking, it was literally God breathing into them. His word, Psalm 119 says that, that all of our commands, all of your commands, God, can be trusted. And if you don't believe this is God's word, then you won't trust his commands. You won't trust the difficult, hard things that he challenges you and says in your life. See, isn't it true that thoughtful people have questions? And sometimes we as Christ followers, we get really defensive about those questions. Don't be. This is what I've learned now in my later years. I am no longer responsible for anybody where they end up. God is. My job is to be able to communicate and to share something of his life, but I don't have to defend God anymore. But, because there's so many people that are very thoughtful and they have questions. You know, they want to know things like, is science or archaeological prove that the Bible is reliable? Does, it, does the Bible really condone practices that are culturally regressive? And I'll talk a little bit about that next week. I mean, really, can an educated 21st century person, can they really take seriously the idea that this text written millennia ago was really inspired by God and that it has relevance for my life today? Because I don't know about you, but I'm sure you've been around people that say pretty strong things like, are you kidding me, man? It's inaccurate, crazy, off-the-wall history. Or it is unbelievable science, or it's terrible psychology and warps people. And I want to address the first two today in the context of the talk, and then I'll talk a little bit about the psychology next week. But this morning, I want you to see evidences and facts to know and to help you make up your mind, not based on what other people say, what culture says, but I want us to look for this book, for the inspiration, and believe that it is inspired by the living God and that we can literally trust it. 
So I want you to see the first thing is the Bible is historically accurate. The Bible is doctrinally, theologically, morally, ethically uh, correct. It's all good. God established that, but we also have to believe that it's historically accurate. The reason to trust the Bible is because historically we can trust what it says. Why is that important? Because Hebrews 6.18 says this, that it is impossible for God to lie because God is truth. We see all these proclamations about the living God. He is truth. He is love. It isn't just that he loves. He's the essence of it. It isn't that he's a truth teller. The essence of who God is is that he is love and he is truth. Psalm 33, 4 says that the word of the Lord is right and it's true. It's not only true about salvation, morals, and ethics and belief, but it's also true about history and the things that we're going to be talking about today. So you say, okay, well, how do we know that the Bible is historically accurate? Well, you test it the same way you test any, any history today. But let's look at what, what would be, uh, what would be an, uh, an example of inaccurate history. So I want to give you a little test today. Let's see if you can pick this up. So what I want you to do is think about these statements that I make and then go, okay, what's accurate, what's inaccurate? See if you can identify it. So the first one, I feel like I'm back in the junior high class again, right? So here's the first thing. It's really easy. In 1792, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Is that accurate history? Why? Wrong date. Good, yeah. It's 1492. Okay. If you're not paying attention, though, you missed the date. Okay, let's go. Let's, let's ramp it up just a little. Second statement is World War II was a bitter four-year, con- uh, bitter four-year conflict that raged from 1890 to 1894. Good history, bad history. Why? Wrong date again. Yeah, we know the World War I took place 1914 to 1918. It's good history pays attention to dates and facts and realities. Okay, let's go just a little further. World War II is a bloody conflict between the Allied and Axis forces fought on the battlefields in central China from 1939 to 1945. Is that good history or bad history? What's bad about it? The location, yeah. Everything else is correct. But it doesn't take much to set, the, to, to set in motion the bad history. We understand it wasn't done in central China. It was done in the South Pacific and predominantly in Europe with a smattering of a few other places. See, history has to have truth and it has to be correct. One more. In, uh, In the decades of the 2010s, Stephen Curry was a power forward playing basketball for the Golden State Warriors, uh, but he had a rather lackluster career to date. Okay, good history? No, no, what's wrong with it? Yeah, man, he's on fire. He's in fuego. He's one of the top players in the NBA right now, and if he keeps going, he will be one of the top players in NBA history. He is not a power forward. He's a point guard. And see, the the storyline and the narrative is wrong, and you can't get those things. You, You can't have good history with that. See, bad history defined as any account of an actual event that begins to play loose with the places, people, storylines, or narratives. I mean, isn't it interesting that we still get now and again some author will pop up with a claim that World War II and and the Holocaust was simply a hoax used for propaganda purposes? 
We can't stop that. But here's the bottom line. That's, that's, that's bad history, friends. That's not good history. So a test of good history is also about eyewitness accounts. A historian would consider something that was written that they found, okay, is it a first, second, or third hand eyewitness account? Because obviously the more accounts that you get involved and have in it, uh, the more problems of discrepancies and, and wrong sources and wrong writing. But they ask, is it a legend that's just been handed down through the years? How many years from the writing to, to where I am today? Is it 10 days? Is it 10 years? Is it 100 years? All of those things are taken into account as a historian. Now, <clears throat> part of the power of the Bible is that it is primarily eyewitness accounts. That's why it's good history. <clears throat> Moses was there when the Red Sea was split. <clears throat> Excuse me. Joshua was there when the walls of Jericho fell. The disciples were with Jesus in the upper room. When they saw his resurrected body, the scars in his hands, Thomas said, I need to touch those. I want to touch those for me to believe. He was there. Dr. Luke talked to all of the disciples. He talked to Jesus' mother and many other people, and he took accounts of what took place so that people would believe what happened and what took place with the life of Christ. That's why we have the Gospels. Those are three-year accounts from four different men who were, who were walking side by side, living it out with Jesus Christ. We have those today. Another test of history is, is, is the extreme care with which the Bible was copied. People, have you ever heard someone say, well, you know, I kind of, you know, the Bible's got a lot of good stuff in it, but I can imagine over a few thousand years that a lot of it has been, you know, it's kind of been diluted because it's been from generation to generation to generation. And don't you believe that somebody probably inserted their own thoughts into it as they went along? Here's what you need to know, especially about the Old Testament. The Old Testament copyists, and I don't have time to give you all of this today, but the Old Testament copyists or scribes, they would copy the scrolls. They would unroll them, they'd have another one, and they would begin to copy them one to another. But it had to be exact. And, and these scribes, they had this long list of rules to make sure that it was exact. And one of the key rules to make sure that it was right and exact, was that the rule was you had to copy it letter by letter, not word by word. Which means this, if I was copying the Bible today, I could not write it in cursive, because that would kind of like be one word. I would have to literally go letter, 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 not word by word. I mean, you ever had it on your phone, you know, when, when, when you do that, that, you know, you got that text prediction, word prediction on there, and, and then all of a sudden you... <laughs> send a text that you really didn't want to say what it said. Yeah, well, they didn't have that then. But, but, but think, back then, they didn't want that to happen. They didn't want a word to be taken out of context or to change the meaning of something. So this is what they did. They copied it letter by letter by letter. And because they knew that this was Yahweh, this was Jehovah, God of the universe, his written expression, breath of life, word to them, guess what? They were really clear, concise, on what they were writing. Now, a historian, too, would want to look at the manuscripts and ask a couple of questions. How many manuscripts are there? And how closely do they compare to the ones that we have through history, even though they may not be originals? James McDonald, a wonderful pastor from the Midwest, wrote a book called God Wrote a Book, and he notes this. There are now more than 5,600 ancient manuscripts of the Greek New Testament 
Add to that nearly 10,000 Latin manuscripts and 9,300 other versions, and we have nearly 2,500 early manuscripts of the Bible. 2,500 manuscripts, pieces, parts of the Scriptures. Did you know that no other historical document even comes close? The next most commonly copied document is Homer's Iliad with 643 manuscripts, and they're all partial as well. The Bible manuscripts outnumber its closest one, 40 to 1. So if you're in a college class and you were to challenge a professor who studies ancient literature and say, well, you know, prof, um, or do we really have a good, reliable version of, of Homer's Iliad that we can really trust as we study it? You know what he'd say? He'd say, sure. Yeah, we've got 643 pieces of it, and we've had it now for, you know, all these years. Sure, yeah, we're good to go. Isn't it interesting that we've got 25,000 of the Scriptures, and very few people want to take that and trust it based on historical evidence? I'm amazed at how God was able to preserve his word. And if you take the, if you consider the gap between the original writing and then the earliest copies of the Iliad, you'll, it was written in 800 BC. The earliest copy available, we believe, is 400 BC. That's a difference of 400 years. The New Testament, the Bible New Testament was completed before 95 AD and written probably started in 50 AD to 95 AD, a 45-year period. Not 400, not 100. Lee Strobel in The Case of Christ points out that the earliest biographies of Alexander the Great were written more than 400 years after Alexander's death in 323 BC. Yet historians considered most of those accounts of his life to be trustworthy. The Gospels were written 30 to 60 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. So you begin to see kind of the veracity of the Scripture when you put it against the historical backdrop of, of good history. We do pretty well. It's been 53 years since President Kennedy was killed. The people who, were, who write about his life now probably can write even more accurately and more objectively than the people did immediately after his death. Because remember, they tried to kind of personify this whole Camelot thing with the Kennedy family. Uh, I read his book, um, Killing Kennedy, um, a couple of years ago, and I was fascinated by just how uh, the, the, the accuracy of it and the things that I've heard and some of the things that were corrected uh, 51 years later. About 30 years after Jesus died, Dr. Luke writes his gospel, and this is what he says in Luke 1. Therefore, since I have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. So you have this doctor, this bright physician who says, I want to set this thing in order, and I want everyone to know what they can believe. There was a big find that most of us have heard. Have you ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls that were found in 1947? See, the biggest significance of finding them was the remarkable similarity between them and the Old Testament texts, and specifically the book of Isaiah. As you begin to compare them, 
900 years apart, we get to check out and see that there was probably about a 5% differential in all of the texts of the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Old Testament writings. 5%. And most of those were a couple of misspellings and, and names that were misspelled. It's incredible how remarkably accurate the history of the Bible is if we just study and we look and we read. Another archaeological proof is that archaeology proves again and again the places, the people that the Bible talks about and how true they are. Many times in the past, historians have have said, oh, the Bible must be wrong because uh, we can't find this or we can't find that. And it's amazing how often the Bible proves itself right. The Bible has not yet disproved itself or anything that it has said. It's all of these things that that, that people don't know or can't find in history all of a sudden become unveiled and the Bible goes, oh yeah, the Bible proves it's right. For years, scholars Uh, uh, historians and scholars would say, boy, there's no way Moses could have written the first five books of the Bible. They believed that people in that day were preliterate, which I don't really get because of the power of the Egyptians and and who they are, but they said they were preliterate and said it's inaccurate history what he's written. Well, years later, archaeological digs have uncovered tablets, writing instruments, showing that a good portion of that culture (laughs) was really literate more sophisticated than these historians ever attributed to them. So what do they got to do? They got to go, oh, whoops, <laughs> maybe the Bible isn't such bad history after all. And if it wasn't that, then the critics would point to a group of people mentioned in Genesis and in the Old Testament called the Hittites. Secular historians said that they were fictional because they had no record of them existing. Therefore, the Bible was bad history. Oh, man, then in 1906, archaeologists unearthed the evidence of a nation that not only existed, but they ended up locating its capital city, that there was 40 cities around it, and that it lasted for over 1,200 years. This was the Hittites. They said, we had no no record of the Hittites, and then in 1906, they find all of this about the Hittite um, uh, nation. Lasted over 1,200 years. Did you know you can get a, a degree today in Hittite studies at the University of Oxford, Oxford? It's amazing how the Bible proves itself over and over. Luke, the historian doctor, he wrote the Gospel of Luke in the book of Acts. He talks about 54 cities, 39 countries, nine different islands with complete historical accuracy. Writer and historian William Lane Craig writes that Luke who wrote Luke and Acts, covering a few decades of time, the life of Jesus, and then we see the book of Acts. Craig writes that he wrote with uncanny geographic and political precision. The Bible, again, proves itself. Lining up with history, and there's other biblical sites that have been found, and I could just start listing a bunch of them, but a couple in the walls of Jericho. Oh, what a crazy thing. I mean, march around walls and it's going to fall. Couldn't happen, first of all, because, you know, life doesn't work that way. And then, number one, we can't find them. So now they found them. The pool of Siloam in John chapter 9, the pool of Bethesda uh, in John chapter 6, Hezekiah's tunnels in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 20. All of those have been found, and now they have validated the veracity of the scriptures. 
Now hear me, listen, but the, the Bible was not written specifically as some kind of human history book. Really, the history that God deal with, deals with is the history of his people. So it's not like he was trying to val- validate and prove what was going on around him. He's talking about his people. But the more it gets studied and the more they learn, the more the Bible validates itself and it passes this history, the historicity tests with flying colors. How about this one, the, the, the scientific accuracy of the Bible. Again, it wasn't written as a science book. The focus, the focus, the thematic red thread that goes through the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation is simply God's redemptive purposes to rescue people for his high calling and purposes. A lot of people say, well, you know, I mean, the, the, the Bible and science, I mean, it's really difficult to coexist. And a lot of scientists will say things like, well, you know, if I can't demonstrate and replicate it in a laboratory, then I'm not ever going to believe it. You know, it's that science theory of, of, of proving things. And theologians, you know, we're going to say, and Christ followers, we're going to say, well, if God's in it, it doesn't matter. You know, we believe he can do anything. Although the scientists and theologians now are are coming at reality from really opposite sides of the the continuum. There are bridges of conversation and understanding that are being built. You will find as you read more and more scientists are at least moving toward the possibility. They don't just see it now as preposterous that there's not a chance in the world that there isn't maybe some kind of designer or activity that comes from the outside that would have helped with the creation of the world. Now, a lot of them don't say God, but, they, but there's this sense that, that, that at least there's a bridge being built between many in the two camps. Johannes Kepler, who was a famous mathematician and astronomer, said this, science is simply thinking God thoughts after him. Einstein said this, he said, I want to know God's thoughts, nothing else. And what does he mean by the thoughts after him. God's established the laws of physics and nature and gravity, and we discover them of biology and science. We discover them as we go. There is this ongoing, which is what the Bible is all about, this ongoing revelation of God, this ongoing revelation or revealing of science and archaeology and nature and biology. It's ongoing. We don't just all of a sudden arrive and have all of this knowledge. But here's the powerful thing is a lot of the things that we continue to learn, God has taught us here. You know why? Because truth never changes. Science changes. Why do you think schools are oftentimes changing out their books, their science books every few years? It's because it's changing. It's growing. It's evolving in a, in a positive way. How many articles have you read that say something about, well, boy, I thought that was good for me. And then, you know, two years later, you read another article and you find out, oh, wow, it's causing cancer. <laughs> you know? That's, that's the way that it works. And we have to be aware of that. If you had been reading the Bible for a thousand years or 500 years or a hundred years prior to today, what the Bible said then would not have matched the science of that day. God understands stuff even when we don't. And those rules don't always apply for that day to this day. Like, for instance, in Isaiah 55, the, the prophet said this, that God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. You hear me? God's not saying you're dumb and I'm smart. He's just saying I'm infinite. 
I'm creator. I know. I put this thing together. You're finite. You can only see what you can see and what is revealed to you. And it's so important that we understand that. But sometimes people get their intellect and make it much bigger than what it is. And they think they know like God. Psalm 148 says this, Let every created thing, the whole universe, give praise to the Lord. For he issued his commands, rules, laws, all of these things that we know are in motion. And they came into being. He established them forever and ever. His orders will never be revoked. Have you ever noticed how gravity always works? You know, you fall, you may get hurt. You drop something, it's not going to stay there. It's going to drink. See, God set all of these things in motion. You water, you put a seed and you water the ground. God established that from the beginning. One of the proofs that I believe show that this book is not simply man-made, but it's God-breathed. And it isn't just a man or a woman that would speak and write things down, but it's literally God's breath is what's not in it. See, if this were a human book, it's likely that it would be filled with scientific facts from the days when it was being written. See, do we understand this? For thousands of years, people believed that what? The earth was flat. And then Copernicus comes and Galileo and and Columbus realize that it's not flat, it's round. So maybe beginning you would expect at some point, because people have always thought this generally, that they would have said the earth is flat. No. Why isn't that in the Bible? Because it's not true. Even if people believe it, God wouldn't have breathed that into somebody. Now, if I was just doing this on my own and I believed that, I might put it down. But God breathed it. And he said, that's not in there. It's interesting, 2,500 years ago, God said through the prophet Isaiah, God is enthroned on the sphere of the earth. Centuries before, we understood that the earth wasn't flat and you'd go out, you know, you'd go 200 miles out into the ocean and go over the edge. God says, no, no, it's a sphere. Long before anybody knew and anybody believed, God said what was true and he didn't let any other thought get in there. For thousands of years, people believed that the earth had to be held up by something. Depending on the culture you were in, you had certain beliefs that, uh, about holding it up. If you're in the Greek culture, there was this guy, this giant, whose name was Atlas. Part of the Bible is the New Testament, most of it's written in Greek. So you would think at some point that one of those writers would have gone, you know what, and you know, everybody's kind of been wondering, oh, how's the earth held up? Well, let me tell you, it's Atlas. No, why isn't that in there? Because God said that's not true. We understand that. Bible tells us that Moses was skilled and he was schooled in all the wisdom of the ancient Egyptians. He was adopted as the father, as Pharaoh's, by Pharaoh's daughter. And so that means he would have gone to the best schools in ancient Egypt. He would have been taught the prevailing sciences of the day. And we understand the Egyptians were pretty brilliant people. I mean, just look at the architecture and the design and, and that these pyramids are still standing today. They were masters of architecture, engineering, and astronomy. But they were wrong on one major thing. They believed that the world, that the earth was held up by five pillars. Now think with me. It's very possible that, it's probable that Moses would have been ingrained in that kind of thinking. 
And yet there's nowhere in the first five books of the Bible that Moses wrote where he talks about the earth being held up by the five pillars. Why is that? Well, because it's not. It's not true. The prevailing science of the day during Moses' time didn't make it into his writing. The oldest known writing to man in literature and in existence today is the book of Job. It was the oldest book in the Bible, the first book written. The Bible isn't always, it isn't in chronological order. But this is what Job said. Job 26.7 says this, that God stretches the sky over empty space and he hangs the earth on nothing. Who told Job that? God breathed that into him. For years, it was accepted science that there was about a thousand stars in the universe, maybe up to 1,200, because that's what they could count, and that's what people taught. It's widely accepted today, you know, that we understand through the course that, you know, the, the stars are probably innumerable because we haven't even got to the next, to, to the ends of the galaxies of the galaxies. We don't even know where that ends yet. So now we believe that this, you know, someone said that the stars are as numerous as the sands. Ah, 2,600 years ago, this is what God spoke through the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 33, 32 says this, the number of stars are infinite. See, once again, the Bible is way ahead of its time. In medicine, for years people would get sick and the accepted custom in science and medicine of the day would have been to cut them and bleed them, thinking if they could get the blood out that that would take care of their sickness. <laughs> we don't believe that anymore. Matter of fact, a lot of people believe that George Washington, our first president, probably died because of the, of the bloodletting. He had a heart condition, and they weren't really able to diagnose it or know what to do, so they just kept uh, bloodletting, bleeding him out. And they did it three or four times until finally they believe he bled to death. Today, we know that you give people blood when they're sick because we know that the life source is found in healthy blood. That's why we have transfusions. Wow. Let me see, what did God say about that? Oh man, thousands of years ago in the early setting of Leviticus 17, 11, he says, the life of every creature is in its blood. How did Moses know that? God breathed it and he wrote it. Proverbs 30, verse 5 says that every word of God is tested and it is flawless. I mean, this is just like a, this is a summary, and this is a flyby, friends. And if you want, you can find so, you find this information, and find so much more of it. But I tell you this because we have to have an understanding that we can trust this book. And the Bible is prophetically accurate. No human can predict the future. The weatherman can't. He's very seldom accurate. Uh, Vegas odds makers, they struggle. Stock market analysts, good luck. Uh, the, the best psychics in the world are going to fall way short. Now, don't go see one. But if you did, here would be the ultimate test. I would not give them anything. If they said, hi, how are you? And I want them to tell me about my life. I would say, before we get this show on the road, two things. Tell me my name and my credit card number. 
because if I'm going to give you access to my life and my money, I want, to tell, I want you to tell me if you're really a good psychic. They can't do it. And don't go to them. But here's the deal. Only God can see and predict the future. Isaiah 46, 9 and 11 says this, I am God and there's no other. I am God and there's none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from the ancient times past to what is to come. What I have said, that will I bring about, and what I have planned, that will I do. So prophetic accuracy, to be prophetically accurate, simply means this, that the predictions in the Bible will always come through. The Bible is filled with thousands of prophecies, friends, where God says, this will happen in this time and in this way. Oh, and it does. Over the centuries, many of these prophecies that have been written have been fulfilled exactly as God said it would and in the way that it would be filled. Did you know just about Jesus Christ alone as the Messiah, there's over 300 prophecies. And those prophecies were given uh, over about a thousand year period before he was born. And they said things like this, this is how he's going to be born. This is how he'll live. This is the process, the way that he'll travel to be born, the city he'll be born in. And then this is how he'll die and the way that he'll die. Even if you're the Messiah, he couldn't control that. But it all happened as was predicted. Now, what are the odds of anybody being able to do that? Of you being able to predict 300 things about me and seeing them come to pass? Every one of them. It's so astronomical, you probably couldn't write down the number. Somebody put it this way. I don't know how, I don't know the, I don't know how true it is, but they said, for the uh, based on the probability of seeing all 300 of those things plus come to pass of Jesus Christ, the, the, the probability of that happening would be like taking, going to the state of Texas, filling the state of Texas with quarters up to your knees, paint one red, and then hide it somewhere, and that somebody could walk out there blindfold and pick the right quarter. That is the probability of somebody being able to fulfill the prophecies in the exact way that were given. I don't know if that's true, but the point is, is that it is, the probability is pretty high. Peter said it this way in 2 Peter, no prophecy ever originated from humans. What does that mean? It means these guys didn't sit around and say, hmm, let's think up this one, let's do that one, and then let's work it out. I can't even get my daily to-do list done, let alone something that was 300 or 400 or 800 years ago. Peter goes on to say, instead, it was given by the Holy Spirit as the humans spoke under God's direction. God breathed and he spoke and they wrote, not their own thoughts, but God's. New Testament prophecy said this, Jesus said, Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. It was prophesied that not one stone would be left on top of another, that happened in A.D. 70, as Jesus talked about. The Bible predicted that the Jewish people would be scattered. We see over time that there begin to be this thing called the dispersia of, of, of the nation of Israel and people going out to spread the gospel. Pretty soon they lost their identity, their homeland. But it was prophesied that before the end times, that before God came, before Christ came back, guess what? There's going to be this rearrangement. They're going to come together and they're going to become a nation again. They're going to get their land back. 1948, shock of all shocks. Guess what happens? The nation of Israel comes back together. God begins to bring the dispersia back and arranges them. And now they become a nation to the astonishment of the rest of the world. God says it and that's what happens. The Bible's trustworthy and it's thematically unified. 
Well, what do you mean? Well, the main theme of the Bible is simply this. The redemption of humanity that is threaded from the beginning of Genesis all the way to Revelation. So what's the big deal? Lots of books come with a thematic unity from beginning to end. I mean, most of them have to. Yeah, but most of those books, as a matter of fact, none of them are written by 40 different authors over 1,600 years. These 40 authors were made up of kings, peasants, fishermen, poets, shepherds, religious leaders, men, women. Each writer had their own personal style written over a 1,600-year span on three different continents. They used different types of literature, narrative, law, teaching, biography, parables, allegory, personal letters, prayer, poetry, prophecy, history, apocalyptic literature. Given the mix, the diversity, the mix of the writings and the diversity of the writers in their backgrounds, their time, their, their place, their space that it was done in, there is this continual unifying theme that is woven through book to book to book. And it's simply this. God loves you. And he's on a rescue mission to bring us home. Picture it this way. The unity of the, the, unity of the theme. Let's say I had 50 pieces of paper and I just went around. The Bible has 66 books, but let's just use this as an example. 50 pieces and I give it to each person. I say, okay, what I want you to do. I'm not going to tell you what I'm going to do with it, but this is what I'm going to do pass out these 50 pieces of paper and give everyone one. It says, okay, I want you to tear something out and then I'm going to collect it in two minutes. So you get your piece of paper, you tear it out and you say, okay, now this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to build a map of the United States with these 50 pieces of paper. Do you think that would happen? No, that would be an impossibility. Yet that's exactly what happened with the Bible, except even much more intense in terms of time and space and diversity and difference. God brings it all together. Don't you think this might lead some of us or many people to believe that there's this guiding hand that's directing all of these human authors? Think about it. I mean, listen, we can't even get 40 people to, I mean, we can't even get four people to agree on something most of the time. If there isn't the divine hand of God engaged and involved in leading us, it doesn't happen the way that it's come out. 1 Peter 1.20 uh, 21 says this, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but from God as they were carried along by the Holy Numas. Numa, the Holy Spirit, the one that is breath, the one that is life. From beginning to end, everything in the scripture, loved ones, points to God's plan through his son, Jesus Christ, pointing to the cross to redeem humanity and to bring us home to him. The Bible is trustworthy because it's confirmed by Jesus. I love this one. Jesus trusted the Bible. Matthew 5.18 says, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of the pen will disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. That's what Jesus said. So he looks at the Bible and he says, it's going to last until the end of time. Everything is going to be accomplished on it that I want accomplished. That's been written in my word. 
When Jesus talks about the Bible, he doesn't just talk about it in these little sweet terms of poetry and, you know, and history. He says, I have given this to you, Luke eleven twenty eight. Blessed are those who hear the word and they obey it. Jesus believed the prophets. In his teachings throughout the Gospels, he talked about Daniel, Noah, and the flood. Daniel, he believed in Adam and Eve, the tragedy of Sodom and Gomorrah. He used that as a backdrop, as an illustration of a tragedy that happened in Luke chapter 13 in his day. He talked about it. He believed Jonah. He talked about Jonah. That's going to be a picture of his resurrection. Just like he was in the whale for three days. Guess what? I'm going to be in the tomb for three days. Then I'm going to resurrect. I find it really fascinating. Very interesting that Noah, Adam and Eve, Sodom and Gomorrah and Jonah are the most disputed stories in the Bible. People say, yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah, good, good. Nice story. Yeah, it's got a pretty good moral lesson to it, but I don't believe it really happened. Jesus believed it happened. And I wonder if he didn't use those very stories as illustrations. He didn't call them parables. He didn't call them allegories. He used them as historical stories. And I wonder if he didn't do that for the simple reason that he said, I want the veracity and truth of the scriptures to be fully embraced by people. And I'm going to put my stamp of approval and seal on it. That's one of the main reasons why I believe the Bible, because of Jesus. The Bible has survived attacks for years. It's been, in, it's been under attack for century after century by everything and everyone that you can imagine. The Bible was originally written on material that perishes called papyrus. Yet the words have survived. It was written long before the printing press or copy machines, but it had to be copied meticulously by those, and it survived. The Bible's been analyzed, scoffed at, and attacked more than any other book, but it's been survived like no other book for 2,000 years. Jesus said this in Matthew 24, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. The only thing on the planet, loved ones, that's going to last, two things, this book and our lives. Heaven will be run on the basis of this book because it's eternal. Remember Voltaire, he was a French skeptic and philosopher. He predicted in his lifetime that within 100 years of his life that uh, Christianity would be an extinct religion and that the only place at some point you'd ever be able to find a Bible is in a museum. He died. He's extinct since, 19, since 1778. Isn't it interesting that the Bible is still in circulation that continues to grow? What's, what's ironic is after his death, some years later, the Geneva Bible Society bought his Geneva home and they used it for printing Bibles and for selling, out of, selling Bibles out of his home. Today it's, a muse, today it's a museum. There's an old saying that I love, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. Here's the deal. Here's what it should say, God said it, that settles it. I want to tell you why, because whether you believe the Bible or I believe the Bible or anybody else believes the Bible, it doesn't matter. God is proving again and again that it is the bottom line. And there's a lot of things that I don't want to believe, but that doesn't make them untrue. And it's the same with the Bible. And that's why I don't argue with people about it. Because if there isn't a revealing, if there isn't a sense of the Spirit of God breathing into them, my words are not going to change them. And I don't need to argue and defend God anymore. Neither do you. 
we just simply speak what it's about. Isaiah 48 says, the grass wither and the flower fades, but the word of God shall stand forever. And we will stand before it one day. The last one and probably the dearest one is this, that the Bible has transforming power. Nothing can change the lives of people like the Bible. Jesus said it this way in John 8. If you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. See, it's not, it's not the truth that sets you free. It's knowing it. And that's where people get confused. I've seen addicts uh, get their life clean. I've seen self-centered narcissistic. It's all about me. Men misuse women, think only of themselves. They come in, they get their life transformed because of the word. They become great husbands, great fathers, great leaders in the church. Here's what I know. Politics cannot change the greatest problems in the world. They can only hopefully regulate it. You can make all the laws in the world you want, but they can't change your heart. You can make laws that outlaw bigotry and racism, but it won't turn a bigot into a lover. Only the person in the life of the word which is Jesus Christ, can do that. I've seen him change people that I never believed for 100 years they would change. People come and say, I came to church one weekend. I was lost and I, was, I didn't know what I was going to do and I heard and I listened to a song or I talked to someone and all of a sudden it clicked. I knew exactly what I was supposed to do. I go, wow, makes me feel so good. So I go back and I look at my notes and I go, I didn't say that. What is that? It's the breath of God. Sometimes I go back and I go, I didn't even preach that Sunday and I really feel bad. But uh, (laughs) that doesn't matter. I'm just kidding. It's, It's the breath of God. It's the Holy Spirit who works so powerfully through God's word when it's preached or it's spoken. Here's the big question. What and who is going to be the authority of your life? G.K. Chesterton was a Christian writer, bright, bright, witty, funny guy. He was asked one time, if you were marooned on a desert island and you only had one book, we could take one book, could get one book, what would it be? Everyone thought he'd say the Bible because he was such a godly man. And he said this, Thomas's Guide to Practical Shipbuilding. (laughs) You know why? Because you find yourself trapped. Find yourself in a desperate situation. You don't want a book that's going to entertain you. You don't want a book that's going to educate you. You want to find out how in the world to get home. And that's exactly what this book is about for all of humanity. Strange power in this book. Hebrews 4 says that it's the, the word of God is living. It's active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrows. You know what that means? It means it goes really deep. As a matter of fact, it goes as deep as it can get without going through. And it judges the the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Have you ever gone to the book and said, I'm going to read it, and it starts reading you? You ever gone to judge it? What does the Bible say? Does it really mean that? And it starts judging you? You want to weigh it and see how much truth is in it? And all of a sudden it says, no, I'm going to weigh you. I want to see how much truth is in you. I know a lot of parts of it can be frustrating and confusing. But you know what part of the issue is? It's, it's, it's ancient. And we don't read much ancient stuff anymore. I'm just starting to go back 200 years now and starting to read things by the Puritans and because I want to, I just, I got to enlarge some thinking. 
But the truths and principles in this word, ancient, are unchanging. And in being able, they're still able to change a life. The ancient world, it was filled with crazy stuff, wasn't it? We, we saw ch- ch- children's sacrifices. We just saw sacrifices. God said to sacrifice to him. We see polygamy all over the pages, ideas of uncleanness and how to get clean and these odd customs. We read it and we think, that is weird. How come they're so weird back then? No, not really. We just don't have any orientation toward the ancient. Because you know what? Fast forward 200 years from today. People are going to look back here. You know what they're going to do? They're weird. They're going to go and they're going to watch a repeat of The Bachelor. (laughs) They're going to go to these YouTube videos where they got these skiing squirrels. They're going to check out music videos of Lady Gaga. And they're going to go, that's really different. And that's what we have to understand. There's never been a book like this book. Read it. Read it. Embrace it. Love it. Start with one of the Gospels, but read it with a humble spirit. Read it repentantly. Say, God, would you meet me in this book? Don't just fill my head, fill my heart with you. And that's what I want us to do. But you can't do that if you don't trust it. We can trust this book. Would you stand with me? Part of the humility is this, as I said, I want to make sure that it isn't, it isn't just our head, but it's our heart. And Jesus is the core. He's the heart of the word. And I want us to be reminded of this simple truth today. Jesus loves me. This, uh, uh, um, Jesus loves us. Karl Barth, one of the greatest thinkers, said this. What's the greatest truth you've ever learned? And he simply said, Jesus loves me. And I don't ever want us to forget that.